You can open up with me to your, in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 14. We'll be looking there to God's Word this morning. If you remember last week, we considered the great words of our Lord, some of the most famous in the Gospel of John, Jesus proclaims, I am the way, <laughs> the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That the great remedy for the troubled souls of the disciples and the great remedy for our troubled souls is faith in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the way. He alone is the truth. He alone is the life. And he calls his people not only to look to him, but look to the glory of heaven, the place that he has prepared for his people, the eternal rest that they have for their souls with him. And that they are to believe not only in God, but they are to believe in him who is truly the Son of God. And we can remember that John actually tells us at the end of his gospel the reason why he wrote the gospel of John. In John chapter 20, he says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the special anointed servant of the Lord, and that he is the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name, that this is the reason John wrote his gospel, so that we might believe so that we might have faith and see who Christ is, see who He is truly, not just physically, not just bodily as a man, but see with the eyes of faith. Not only that He is the Christ, the special anointed servant of the Lord, the Messiah, but as we're going to see today, that He is the Son of the living God the second person of the triune God, as we just confessed, the eternal Son of the eternal Father. And what we're going to see today is that to see Him for who He truly is, is to see God. (laughs) To see Christ for who He truly is, to believe in Him by faith, to come to Him, to know Him, to see Him, is to see God. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This, as we're going to see, is the unity of our triune God. But as we've seen several times in this account, there's going to be confusion by the disciples. They're not going to understand what Jesus means. What are his words meaning? What is he talking about? We're going to see again that there's confusion from one of the disciples, namely Philip. He's going to ask of our Lord a request But what we're going to see is that our Lord, in his answer and in his response to Philip, reveals to us the glorious realities and the profound mysteries of our triune God. And we're going to see today some very difficult passages, some very interesting language that our Lord uses about himself in his relation to the Father. Not for the purpose of confusing us, but for the purpose of of giving us great comfort, that we might have a firm foundation and a lasting hope as we see that to trust in Christ as the Son of God is to trust in nothing less than God. And so I'm going to read our passage for us this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word this morning. I'm going to begin at verse 1 of chapter 14, but we'll look specifically 
at verses 7 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on the count of the works themselves. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, that it is only because of your divine revelation to us, found in Holy Scripture, that we can know and understand who you are. Even though creation reveals there is a God, proclaims your divine power and your attributes, Lord, it is your word alone that tells us about your triune nature, that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, infinite and eternal and unchanging. These are profound mysteries, Lord, and we We come this morning in our weakness, in our frailty, in our human understanding that cannot comprehend you as you are. And yet we come this morning, Lord, seeking to know you more, seeking to worship you more truly and more clearly. And so we ask and pray, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to see and understand these truths. And even though we cannot comprehend you, Lord, we pray that we can we would confess who you are this morning and adore you for your work. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three things this morning in our passage. In verses 7 through 9, we're going to look at the unity of God's revelation. The unity of God's revelation. In the first part of verse 10, we're going to look at the second thing, which is the unity of God's nature. The unity of God's nature. And then finally, we'll look at the unity of God's works. The unity of God's works. So we see first the unity of God's revelation. 
that Jesus has just described and explained to his disciples that he is going to the Father. He has proclaimed himself as the only way to the Father, the only way to eternal life, to salvation, to everlasting life is only found through him. And in our passage this morning, he now reveals to his disciples why this is so. As we've seen in John's gospel, Christ has come to reveal the one true God. Christ has come to reveal the one true God, to make him known. It might take a while to remember all the way back to John chapter 1 in John's prologue with the first 18 verses. And in that final 18th verse of John's prologue, he says this, No one has ever seen God. (laughs) No one has ever seen God. Why? Because God is spirit. He is invisible. He is incomprehensible. No one has ever seen God. But he goes on to say, but this word, this logos that has taken on flesh has made him known, has exegeted him, has revealed him, has declared this God. Not by virtue of Christ's human nature, Christ's human nature doesn't reveal anything about God in and of itself because God does not have a human nature, but by virtue of his divine nature that is manifested in the person of Christ, that Jesus, who is God, has come to reveal the one true God. He has come to make him known. And this is what our Lord tells his disciples at the beginning part of verse 7. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. If you had known me fully, if you had known me truly for who I really am, you would have understood that in knowing me, you do indeed know the Father. One early church father said this, a recognition of God the Son produces a recognition of God the Father. A recognition of God the Son produces a recognition of God the Father. That to know one truly is to know the other. But Jesus says something mysterious and amazing at the latter part of verse 7. He says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. You do know the Father and have seen him. Hmm. What does our Lord mean by these words? Well, we see Philip here does not understand. (laughs) Philip is confused by the words of our Lord. He is focused, we see, on the physical, on the earthly. And Philip, much like Moses that we read about in the book of Exodus, desires a physical sight of God's glory. He wants to see God. And he tells Jesus in verse 8, Lord Show us the Father. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. It's almost as if Philip is saying here, if you would just show us the Father, if you would just show us the divine glory, it would be enough. We wouldn't be troubled anymore. We wouldn't have any more problems. We wouldn't be so afraid. We wouldn't be so saddened and confused and uneasy about our circumstances. If you would just show us the Father, it would be enough. It would be sufficient. It would be enough. 
In other words, what he's saying is, I need more. The revelation that you've given me, Jesus, is not sufficient. It's not enough. If you would just show me this, it would be enough. But we see in verse 9, our Lord turns to him and says these piercing words. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Don't you see, Philip? To see me truly is to see the Father also. Not with the eyes of the body, but with the eyes of faith. Philip, you don't need a physical manifestation of God's glory. You don't need a physical revelation. You need me. You need me, Philip. You need to know me. You need to believe in me. That to see me truly with the eyes of faith is to see the Father also. Not because we are the same person, simply wearing different masks, but because we possess the same nature. Because I am God, Philip. To see me is to see the Father. What do we read in Colossians chapter 1? That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so Jesus here in these words shows us not only his divine nature and the mystery of the doctrine of the Trinity, but he points us to the unity of God's revelation of himself. That to see the Son truly is to see the Father, is to see the Spirit. That to know the Son is to know the Father also. That true faith sees the revelation of Christ in the gospel and in believing, sees the face of the living God, the triune one who is God. Now sadly, verse 9 has been used by many heretics, both past and present, to actually deny the doctrine of the Trinity. If you've ever heard of the heresy modalism, or the older language of Sabellianism, that is this early, it's actually one of the earliest heresies in the early church and is sadly still around today, that believes that there is one God, which we also believe, but that there is only one person of God. And that this person simply wears different masks or appears in different modes. The father mode, the son mode, and the spirit mode. And so really, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are just one person that appears in different mass. And they will use verse 9 of John chapter 14 to prove, or try to prove their point. They will say, look, the Father and the Son are the same person. To see me is to see the Father. Jesus is just saying, him and the Father are the same person. They deny a real distinction of the person's. But what's so ironic about this is that's actually the opposite of what Jesus is doing. (laughs) It's the precise opposite of what our Lord is doing in verse 9. Jesus is what the Father is, namely God. Yet He continues to be the Son, distinct from the Father, not the same person. That's why He says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He would not have said that if they were the same person. Whoever has seen me 
has seen the Father. He is distinguishing himself as Son from the Father. Not separating, not dividing, but distinguishing. But the question might still remain in our minds and maybe in the minds of the disciples, how can these three be one? How can these distinct persons be one eternal God? And that leads us to our second point this morning, the unity of God's nature. The unity of God's nature. That when we come to verse 10, we come to what I think is one of the most profound verses in all of Holy Scripture. One of the most profound verses in all of Holy Scripture and a glorious mystery of God's revelation of Himself and His triune nature. Jesus says, How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe, Philip, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Do you not believe? He's saying, don't you know? Don't you understand that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? I believe here Jesus is actually referring back to John chapter 10, verse 38. And if you remember the context there, the Jews were getting ready to stone our Lord. They were getting ready to pick up stones to kill Christ because He said these six simple words, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Not just one in purpose, but one in nature, one in essence, one in being. They understood what Jesus was saying. He was claiming to be equal with God. And he said these same words in John chapter 10, and he says these same words, actually in reverse, it's kind of interesting. He says, I am in the Father, and the Father is is in me. He's saying to Philip, don't you believe what I said previously? Don't you understand who I am and what I've been saying? And I think we can resonate with Peter, not Peter, Philip this morning. Maybe some of you are thinking what he was thinking. No, (laughs) I don't understand what this means. What does it mean that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father? What does it mean when we say we believe in one God in three persons? How can these two seemingly contradictory things be? When we begin to contemplate the doctrine of the Trinity, we have to understand that we are contemplating a divine mystery. A divine mystery, the unity of our triune God. I liked what one person said. When we talk about the mystery of the Trinity, we are not trying to explain away the mystery, but rightly speak about the one who is three. We're not trying to explain away the mystery and say, we have it all figured out, but we are trying to rightly speak about the one who is three. Though we cannot comprehend God as he is, we must confess who he has revealed himself to be. And so we see in Scripture these kind of truths that sort of bounce around, if you will. We see that both clearly in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is very clear that there is one true and living God. What does the book of Deuteronomy say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
There is one true and living God. But when we come to the New Testament, we see that there are three that are worshipped as God, possessing the same nature, glory, and attributes. Eternally distinguished by their divine processions, Father begetting Son, Son and Father breathing forth the Spirit. So there's one true living God, but there's three that are worshipped as God. We see also that Scripture is clear. God is simple. He is not composed of parts. These three persons are not three gods or three parts of God, but one true and living God. And yet these three are really distinct, as we just discussed. Distinct from one another. The eternal relations of origin. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. How can these things be? And we see this back and forth between the oneness of God and the three. The three and the one. And our minds are grasping (laughs) to understand this. How can these things be? And the answer, we confess, is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of our mysterious and glorious triune God. And we see in this passage and in these words of our Lord, Jesus reveals further God's triunity by speaking of the mutual indwelling of the persons of the triune God. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. This is what we call the doctrine, here's a big word, of perichoresis. Perichoresis. Okay, write that one down. Maybe you can impress some friends with this. The doctrine of perichoresis. What does this mean? That the three persons of the Godhead indwell one another in perfect Trinitarian unity and communion. The Father dwelling in the Son and the Spirit. The Son dwelling in the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit dwelling in the Father and the Son not melding into one another so as to lose their distinction, but person, indwelling person, in the unity of God's essence and nature. This is the doctrine of perichoresis. This profound and mysterious doctrine that we can confess, but we cannot comprehend. But this is a very important thing. This is not just a truth that we hide up on the shelf and sort of make sure we have our ducks in a row and forget about it. This profound and mysterious doctrine is actually very important to what we believe about God, who He is. It prevents us and protects us from partitioning off the persons of the Trinity, separating the persons of the Godhead, or dividing up God's essence. What did we confess this morning? That in this one being, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each having the whole divine essence. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. What's it say? Yet the essence undivided. We cannot partition off the persons of the Godhead and separate them. This doctrine of perichoresis or mutual indwelling prevents us and protects us from these errors. And we see our Lord showing a picture, a window in this vast landscape of the infinitude of who God is, showing the unity of God's triune nature. 
that these are not three different masks that God puts on, not three centers of consciousness or a community of persons that somehow all together make up God, but one true and living God who simply is Father, begetting Son, and together breathing forth the Holy Spirit. This is who we believe in. A profound mystery, yet we must adore. Impossible for us to comprehend, yet we must confess. And it is this glorious revelation of God's unity and His essential unity in His very nature that really sets the stage for its external outworking in the unity of God's works and word. And we see that in the third section this morning as we look to the unity of God's works, the unity of God's works that we see in the latter part of verse 10. Jesus says these words, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He's reaffirming everything we've just said. Don't you see? You cannot separate the Father and the Son. You cannot separate our words or our works. You cannot separate out the works of the triune God. That because God is one, everything Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do toward creation, they do inseparably unable to be separated. This is what we call, here's another big word, the doctrine of inseparable operations, okay? Now you have two vocabulary words to impress people with. The doctrine of inseparable operations, that just as we cannot separate out the persons of the Godhead and divide them up, so we cannot separate out the external works of God. What does Jesus say in verse 10? The Father who dwells in me does his works. That the Father is working through the Son. This means that the persons of the Godhead are not out just doing their own thing. (laughs) It's not like the Son has a will and the Father has a will and the Spirit has a will and they're just kind of all doing their own thing. No, the works of God and the Word of God are inseparable. They don't have their separate functions. There's, that's a buzzword in our day, if you've ever heard of the eternal functional subordination of the Son. This idea that the Son has this eternal role of, uh, of being subordinate to the Father. This rules that out completely. That the divine persons are not doing their own thing. They are inseparable in their works and what they have done in creation. What did Jesus say in John chapter 5? My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. (laughs) The Father is working until now, and I myself am working, making His working identical with the Father. That even though the redemptive missions of the Son's incarnation and the sending of the Spirit, even though they reveal God's triune nature, they do not divide up the works of the living God. And then Jesus says these words in verse 11. He says, Believe me (laughs) that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. My works show 
that I am God. I am one with the Father. They are a witness to my divine power and my divine nature. And even though in this passage, the disciples are still confused about this. And maybe you can still identify with them. I don't understand. (laughs) I don't get it. We have this great picture at the end of John's gospel in John chapter 20. After our Lord's been crucified, buried, and resurrected, he appears to Thomas, the doubting disciple, and he shows him the holes in his hands. And Thomas, for the first time, confesses these great words, my Lord and my God. (laughs) Thomas understands now who is standing in front of him, not just a man, but God incarnate. And Jesus says these great words, blessed is the one who believes and does not see, pointing us to the need for faith in his person and work. And so as we come away from these passages, and we've spoken of big and sometimes difficult things, it's important that we step back and think about what does this mean? For our everyday life? Does the doctrine of the Trinity really have any implication on how I live my life? Does it affect me in any way, or is it simply just something we keep in our confession, we make sure we say it, but then we leave it there? I don't believe so. And we're going to look this morning at the three things that is important as we understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And the first one is this. The, important of, the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity for our faith. The importance of the doctrine of the Trinity for our faith. That as we confess in the Athanasian Creed, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. That this, brothers and sisters, is our faith. (laughs) We are Trinitarians. We are Christians. We are Orthodox believers. This is what we confess This is what distinguishes us from all other faiths. But this is a profound mystery. (laughs) It is a profound mystery to confess the one who is three. I love these words from Gregory of Nassians. This was written in the year 381. He says these great words. I feel like it really captures how we should feel. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. And no sooner do I distinguish them than I am am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light." He cannot distinguish ultimately or separate this one who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we've said so many times, and I love how Stephen Charnock put it, he says, though we cannot comprehend God as He is, we must not fancy God to be what He is not. Though we cannot comprehend God as He is, we cannot fancy God to be what He is not. We're not modalists. We're not social Trinitarians. We're not tritheists. We're not subordinationists. We are Orthodox, small c Catholic, creedal 
confessional Orthodox Trinitarians. That's what we are. That's what we confess. That is what we believe. And this passage here dismantles any other view. It dismantles any other heretical position. It shows us the unity of God, that He is one true and living God. But it also shows us that we must distinguish the persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But more than just distinguishing us from error and from heretical views of God, this doctrine of the Trinity, as we've said this morning, is the foundation of all of our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon Him. That we have no hope apart from our triune God. And you might say to yourself this morning, I still don't understand it. (laughs) I still don't get it. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? I still don't understand it. It all seems strange to me. And one theologian said, it would be strange if God were not strange. If we could comprehend God, He wouldn't be God. So you might be feeling that way this morning. Maybe you feel like, I don't, I don't feel like I fully get this. I don't understand. I don't comprehend but we must confess. And this confession of who God is should lead us to adoration for the one that we cannot comprehend. What do we sing each and every week in the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise all creatures here below. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This is our doxology. This is our confession. What do we sing in the Gloria Patria? Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. This, brothers and sisters, is our Trinitarian theology. This is our faith. But we see also in this passage the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity for our sanctification. For our sanctification. When we see who Christ is, who He truly is, with the eyes of faith, as He is revealed to us in the Gospel of Christ, this is how we are changed. This is how we are sanctified. This, brothers and sisters, is how we are transformed. I think there's many in our day, like Philip, that want to see the glory of God. They want to see the glory of God They say things like, if I could just see God's glory, then I would be changed. If I could just see a vision or a miracle, I would believe. If I could just see what Moses saw in the glory cloud passing by, it would be sufficient for me. If I could just see this or that thing, it would be sufficient. Enough. And what they're really saying is that the revelation that God has given is insufficient. It's not enough. I need something more. I need something greater. But brothers and sisters, we don't need a vision. We don't need a physical manifestation of God's glory. We don't need a fresh word from the Lord. We need Christ. We need the gospel. We need to believe Christ's Word and His works. We need to see this morning with the eyes of faith. 
that this is what it means to truly see the glory of God, because it is in seeing Christ as He is revealed to us in the gospel by the power of the Spirit that we truly behold God's glory by faith. And that unlike Moses, who had to veil his face, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says these words, and we with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. By beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That by beholding Christ as He's revealed to us in the Gospel, who He is as God, very and truly, we're changed. We're transformed. We're sanctified. We don't want to live for our sin anymore. We see what we sang this morning. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? The Gospel is enough. God's Word is sufficient for us. Christ is enough. This is what God has done for us. Not some man who lived as a good moral example of how to live our lives, but God incarnate. This is the glory of the new covenant of grace. This is how we are changed. And this is the foundation of our covenant union with Him and the triune God. But this also is the foundation of our union and communion with one another. And that leads us, thirdly and finally, to the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity for our unity. The importance of the doctrine of the Trinity for our unity. That as we all know, there's much division in our day, right? There's division maybe in our workplace. There's division maybe in our own home, and our family, in our friendships, there's division everywhere. And the church is not exempt from this division, right? We sing this in that great song, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distress. That in the church there is sin, there is division, there is infighting. And this should trouble us as believers, that there is sin that separates us, there's sin that divides us. But what's so amazing is that if you go three more chapters in John's Gospel, in John 17, we read in our Lord's high priestly prayer, He prays for the unity of His blood-bought people. He prays for the unity of His church, rooted in the unity of the triune God. He says these words in John 17, praying to the Father, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask for these only, talking about the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Listen to these words. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
that Jesus here uses the unity of the triune God as the foundation of the unity God's people should have with one another. The communion and unity believers should have with each other. A real, tangible unity by the Spirit with Christ's people. There's a great um, Reformed thinker, Peter von Maastricht. He says these profound words and convicting words. He says, We cannot have communion with the sacred trinity apart from this communion with the saints. We cannot have communion with the sacred trinity apart from this communion with the saints. There's no such thing as a loner Christian. There's no such thing as someone saying, well, I love Christ, but not his church. There is no such thing. It is true that there is hurt within the church. People are often hurt by the church. And some people have just never been to a healthy local church before. But it is essential that we have and fight for this unity that our Lord prays for and speaks about this unity and communion with the saints found in meaningful church membership, real fellowship with other believers despite our differences. One person said this, the oneness of the church for which Jesus prays is a real, visible, objective reality rooted in God's intra-Trinitarian oneness and love. This prayer is important because it shows us that we should be one as a church because we are one in communion with the triune God. (laughs) Because we are in fellowship with Him, united with Him by the work of Christ, we can have union and fellowship with one another. That our fellowship and unity as Christians is rooted in this reality of God's triunity. And as Paul says in Ephesians, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, For there is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. This is the unity that we should fight for as believers in the Lord and in the triune God. And this unity, even though we will not fully realize it this side of heaven, that's ultimately what we look forward to in glory. Seeing God in all His glory beholding Him as He is, dwelling with Him in perfect unity and dwelling with one another in perfect communion. This is all the work of the triune God, sending His Son, pouring out His Spirit so that we might have fellowship with Him and look forward to glory with Him forever. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for your triunity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, infinite and eternal and incomprehensible. And yet, in your grace and mercy, you reveal yourself to us. You reveal your nature to us, Lord. And we're in awe. We cannot comprehend, we cannot fully understand, but we confess this morning, Lord, 
who you have revealed yourself to be, and we stand in adoration and worship of you. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that as we seek to understand these things and we seek to believe in the one who is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sake and died for our life, we have hope this morning. And we pray that you would use your word to illumine our hearts to your truths, and that as we go from here, we would truly be changed. We would be sanctified as we behold Christ in the gospel, because he is nothing less than God. We thank you for your manifold grace, and we pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would fellowship with us, even as we come to the supper, Lord, that we might have union and communion with you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.